Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. Uh, I am really excited about this week's episode, which is a, a different kind of episode. It is something different. I spoke with G. Willow Wilson. She's the author of The Butterfly Mosque, which is a memoir of her time living in Egypt and converting to Islam. All of the Unseen, which is a, a fantastic fantasy novel that won the World Fantasy Award. Miss Marvel, uh, the ongoing comic, which has won the Hugo Award, has been a massive, massive critical and, and audience smash. It's also, I think, for many people, redefined what a superhero can be. We talk about traditionalism and, and gender roles in Egypt and, and in America. And of course, we talk about, about comics and about storytelling and about representation. We talk about Gamergate. We talk about superheroes as, as modern myths and why they have emerged into the space they're in in American culture. And we talk about who she would like to see resuscitated, which comic book characters she would like to see reinterpreted for this era. The idea to interview Willow came from one of you, uh, someone who wrote into Ezra Klein's show at Vox.com. Uh, I do read those. I do take them seriously. They do end up guests on this show. So please keep sending me your ideas. Please keep sending me your guests. Again, that is Ezra Klein's show at Vox.com. All that said, I hope you do enjoy this. And here is G. Willow Wilson. G. Willow Wilson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I read, I'm a big fan of Miss Marvel, a big fan of a lot of your work, but I read in, in preparation for this, your wonderful memoir, The Butterfly Mosque. And I found it to be a really striking book that, that, that you really have there. And then I realized it was a thread in, in later things I've read by you, a, a pretty profound empathy for ideas that I think aren't often treated with empathy and appreciation in U.S. culture, uh, not not just Islam, but but traditionalist societies that, that you see I think a beauty in things many Americans look at and really see only backwardness or, or, or oppression. And, and I'm curious how much you track that back. I'm curious how much that was an experience that happened when, when you went to Egypt versus that has been a, a fact of you and a thing that maybe set you a bit intellectually apart going back further. You know, that's a very interesting question. And I'm not entirely sure how to to answer it i i was raised in a sort of very post religious atheist lapsed 
Protestant household. So, you know, tr- tradition was not a big part of my upbringing at all. But I, I think I am by nature. Well, let's put it this way. If if Dawkins is right and there is a God gene, I have the God gene, <laughs> maybe even several of them. And so for me, I think the, the, the struggle to sort of put words to things that I had always felt about the way that the universe is put together and, uh, you know, what it, that means for us as, as human beings kind of inevitably led me to discussions in religion around the ways that people have always interpreted human experience or, or the traditions that have arisen around those same questions. So I think maybe my attraction to traditionalism, if we can call it that, has roots in in sort of who I am or in, in my personality. But I think it really was moving to Egypt as a young adult at, at sort of a critical time, uh, you know, in my life where, you know, like many people in my late teens, I was trying to figure out who I was and who I was going to be as an adult and kind of de- defining myself as a person independent from my peers or my family. And so I think, you know, it, it was really kind of a combination of of factors, but that being in Egypt at that particular time and among the particular people who I came to call friends and family had an enormous impact in undoing some of my preconceptions about what more traditional societies are like as well. Before we dig into Egypt, I, I do not know uh, what Richard Dawkins has written about the God gene, but it sounds like it actually may be a useful concept for this conversation. So w- <laughs> what is his idea of the God gene? Oh, gosh, you're going to you're asking me to reach back into my college uh, <laughs> science reading. But I think it's been a, a fairly common suggestion, I think, among among certain strains of uh, uh, atheist thinking for the past couple of decades that there there may be sort of a genetic reason that some people believe in God and others do not. And it may go a long way to sort of uh, explain why the concept of God is is so persistent across cultures and has survived long beyond uh, the, the sort of the usefulness of religion in describing why existence is and why, you know, there isn't just a black void or describing why or how the universe began, which which we can now model perfectly well without, you know, a God ever sort of interfering in that process. I, I sort of refer to it in, in, in kind of an offhand uh, way. But uh, <laughs> what I really mean by that is is that for me, belief is not a choice or a rationalization. I, I think for some people, belief is is very much looking to put a rational answer on th- on questions that they think there are no other answers to. So it's kind of a deductive process. For me, it's something much more intuitive. It's not something I can turn on or off. And that's why I sort of uh, will, will, will kind of make reference to that God gene. It's it's just something that you know, <laughs> I'm I'm epigenetically predisposed to to believe in God. It's it's not for me kind of a. a a step-by-step rationalization of of the universe or something else. I, I actually love that thought so much because this is something that I struggle with. I, I had actually Andrew Sullivan on the show a while back, who's a, a writer in Washington. Yeah. And we talked for a long time about his experience during the height of the HIV AIDS plague. Mm-hmm. When he he is HIV positive, he had friends dying all around him. And he said to me, so he's a very committed Catholic, and he said to me on that during that conversation, uh, which which folks can find in the archives here, that he never felt closer to God than during that period. 
Mm. And I remember, I, I remember asking him, why didn't seeing that devastation, that pain, that death, that suffering visited upon you and your community for for a, a reason that you did not believe to be ill? Certainly, why did that not shake your faith? And he said, it just never occurred to me to have that shake my faith. And mm. something you wrote in your book was that the antecedent of your of your conversion to Islam came when you were really ill. Mm-hmm. And, and as somebody who I think maybe does not have that God gene, who has often wanted to believe and has, you know, searched and and done a lot of reading and was for for a moment a religious studies major and, and, and all the things you do, but has never been able to cross that chasm of belief. I'm very interested in in that feeling, that idea that maybe this is not something you can talk yourself into. And, and it feels mm-hmm. to me that moments of sickness really are this almost dividing line because the thing I cannot get over are those questions, the child with leukemia. And it really feels like it would be a different experience of the world to to feel that kind of senseless pain mm-hmm. and see something greater and more miraculous in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, of course, the the problem of evil and of suffering are big, big questions that are that are probably some of the primary things that faith traditions all over the world wrestle with in, in very different ways and with very different results. Um, but but for me, and you know, I, I emphasize what with what Andrew Sullivan observed, belief was really not about the proportion of good and evil that exists in the world or in the cosmos. Um, For me, belief was about the persistence of things larger than I. I I think one of of the things that really gave me a lot of peace, uh, you know, when I was sick in uh, in college, um, was that no matter what happened to me, the sun was still going to come up in the morning and people were still going to fall in love and wars were still going to happen and stars were still going to be born and die billions of light years away. And that I was at once completely insignificant. And because everything was kind of equally insignificant, also at the center. So it, it was an interesting sort of, I uh, gosh, I don't know what even to call it, a, a tautology maybe. Um, and And so I did not you know, I I didn't really need, I think, God to sort of be like a benevolent human figure in order to be real. There's a very interesting articulation of this in the Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver, which I thought was was very good and which I read around this, this same time. And, you know, in it, one of the characters is an epidemiologist studying diseases that that wreak horrors on innocent people. And, you know, she says at one point that when you study diseases like that, you have to consider the possibility that God is not exclusively on our side. And, you know, that uh, God is also making the cancers and God is the creator of the horrible diseases and all of these things. And I I think, you know, I, I found that somehow thrilling in the sense that everything collapsed into kind of a single point, that that all of the things, good and bad and, and ugly and evil and beautiful, all sort of originated at the same place. And to me, what that did was was sort of decouple my relationship with the cosmos from my relationship to beauty. I think, you know, in our day and age, when we when we tend to say, oh, 
I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. When we, when we say spirituality, what we really mean are aesthetic experiences, a beautiful sunset, you know, a gorgeous, unspoiled mountain range, uh, you know, a transcendent piece of music, something like that. These are the things that people cite when they talk about having a quote unquote spiritual experience. I mean, you know, not to belittle that, but that to me seems somewhat shallow because then where is God when there is no beauty? Does God disappear? You know, where does God go? And I think having, having sort of felt closest to a sense of divine when, when I felt really bad <laughs> and, you know, was, was sort of half hallucinating because of insomnia and, uh, you know, just not having a very good time of things made me really wonder, you know, is there more to it than just beauty? It, maybe there's more meaning than, than just the nice things. Maybe being good and being nice are not necessarily synonymous in sort of a cosmological sense. Um, so, so to me, it was, it was, I think part of my, my kind of innate hyper monotheism. <laughs> I think most of us who would like to be monotheists are in some way dualists. We like to ascribe good things to the divine and bad things to something else, which means there are really two creators or multiple creators in the world. Um, but when you realize that those things in kind of a cosmological way are linked then that changes your your sort of feeling and your relationship with with what that divine thing, whatever you call it, might be. I don't well, know if that makes any sense. No, that makes perfect <laughs> sense to me, actually. But one thing that I that I think is unusual about it is that when I've heard versions of this outlook before, not not of course this exact one, but but people who've seen the world uh, a bit the way you do, it has often taken them away from the major traditions. Because the major traditions have a story around them and they often have a reasonably dualistic story. But they have a, a story where it is a little bit hard to fit the god of cancer with mm -hmm. the god of the New Testament. Not impossible and obviously there is – tremendous theologians have done that. But the same thing is true for the god of Islam, I would say, and, 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 the, god of, and, and the god of cancer. That in, in these stories, the way the prophets often explain it is that – God loves us and, and wants us to be happy and obviously there is a lot of obligation and there's a lot that is asked of us and that is not an easy relationship. But that the problem of, of evil, the problem of a gigantic cosmos in which we are often insignificant is more acute because a story is told so much towards us. And so I sometimes hear people may see the world a bit this way but, but move off into a more inchoate form of spirituality, a spirituality that doesn't have a story attached to it. It's just, you know, the, there's a oneness, there are connections, there are things we don't understand. But but what's interesting to me is it is it led you to, to Islam, to mm -hmm. one of the, the great monotheistic religions. It does have a little bit more of this story about people and God's relationship with people and what we can do to please God. And it, it's a much more active creator and much more, I think, focused on the idea of human flourishing which it doesn't seem to me that your idea of, of spirituality quite is. In a, in a sense, yes. But, but Islam, I think, uh, sort of takes a different path than, than certainly Christianity. I think it's much closer in its view of, of how the cosmos is structured to Judaism than it is to Christianity, even though it comes last of the three. Um, in the sense that, you know, in, in Christianity, God is very much a benevolent parent, you know, which, which makes it much easier to locate God in time and in space and even with a gender. You know, he's God the Father. Whereas in Islam, God has no gender. God is outside of time and, and space. Um, you know, it's, it's not a personal view of God 
uh, this this idea of having a personal relationship with God is is kind of not a thing in Islam. Although in some places in the West that's changing, as as you know, Western Muslims are very much influenced um, by the theology uh, of of Christianity as it as it exists today in the West, um, and borrowing some of those same ideas. Um, but classically, it's it's very hard to fit this notion of having a personal relationship with God into Islam. Um, because God is, is omnipresent, but at the same time, much more remote. Uh, you know, he's not your friend. <laughs> uh, he's not your pal. And I, I think what was really striking to me, and I, I came into Islam a little bit sideways in the sense that I was, I was experiencing it for the first time in a purely textual sense, just through books. I really didn't know very many Muslims at all. Um, and the thing that struck me first were actually the 99 names of God, which are 99 uh, terms that refer to God that occur in various places in the Quran. And what fascinated me was that God could be at once uh, al-Rahman, which is, there, there really isn't a word for that in English. We say the beneficent or the merciful, but that doesn't even come close. It's, it's a word with the same root as rahm, which is the womb, the uterus. Um, but sort of uncobbled and, and put together in a way that means like mercy for which we, we have no comprehension. So, so the most merciful. And yet at the same time, the debaser and the layer low and, you know, all of these other things that are much less pleasant. And, you know, when you, when you get down and pray, you don't get to just pray to the beneficent and the merciful. You're praying to all of those things. Um, you can't separate them out because then it's no longer monotheism. So that was very attractive to me, sort of in that state. And while Islam certainly has stories attached to it, it is not the same kind of con continuous and contiguous story that you find in the Old and New Testament, where it's, it's sort of a record of historical events and a description of God's intervention in various ways in those historical events. The Quran assumes that you already know those stories and will reference them in a very indirect offhand way um, which is why I tell people, you know, if, you know, who say, I want to read the Quran, which translation should I get? I said, don't get any translation. Make sure you've read the entire Bible. <laughs> because if you have not read the Bible, much of the Quran will make no sense to you. Um, so it assumes familiarity with those stories, but it, it takes a much different approach to what those stories mean and to, you know, what is meant by prophethood and, uh, you know, what, the significance of those stories are to to individual uh, believers, and and so it it you you're left with something that is much more diffuse, and which functions in a lot of places as kind of a rebuttal uh, to to many of the classical interpretations of the stories in the Bible. So you know, I'd I'd say that yes, there there is a sort of a story attached to Islam more so than there is for, for sort of that more unfocused thing that we call spirituality. But it's the, the focus is much different, I'd say, than it is in Christianity and certainly in modern Christianity, which I think is actually struggling more with the problem of evil than, um, you know, than, than Western Christianity classically has in the past. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, 
Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? You often look at things that I think people have a lot of received wisdom about and have a very different take on them. And one of the the things that really struck me was when in the Butterfly Mosque, you described Islam as anti-authoritarian, sex-positive monotheism. (laughs) The part of Islam that you connected to is not, I think, the westernized, re-intellectualized form of it, which you also have, of course, with Judaism, which is my tradition with um, Christianity. You you connected, it seems to me, to, to something that is both more familiar to folks who have been practicing it for longer but also is very much not the impression I think that most Westerners have of what Islam is. And I'm I'm curious if that felt like a tension to you or if you just feel that the stereotype that we have of the religion is simply fundamentally off. Um, I don't know that there's one answer to that. Um, Hearing that, I'm I'm like, oh, my God, I really was 23 when I wrote that. Um, Did you write the Butterfly Mosque at 23? I wrote it. I started it at 21. I finished it at 25. And I did some editing after that. It came out when I was, I think, 27. Um, So, yes, I was very young. (laughs) I was very young and idealistic. And I think, you know, now, at least to me, uh, I'm 34 now. And uh, so so with, with another 10 years kind of under my belt, I kind of look back and I'm like, you know, it's it's. I was trying not to be overly idealistic, but looking back, I was like, yeah, you can't. I mean, that's part of the fun of being 23, right? Is that you get to be overly idealistic. Sure. And, and <laughs> that's, no, nobody should otherwise, take that away what is, from what's the point of being 23? Yeah. In, in large parts, I still believe those things to be true. I see now how being in the specific place that I was and among the specific people that I was, you know, lucky enough to, to be around at that time, that that very much colored my view of what Islam is. And I think today I would hesitate before saying Islam is anything because really we should be talking about Islam's plural. You know, now that I'm here in the U.S. and the majority of uh, mosques that I go to and social circles that I move in among American Muslims are much more heavily dominated by the Islam of the Indian subcontinent. So India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and their view on things and their interpretations are, are radically different than sort of the, you know, very Sufi-influenced North African, specifically Egyptian iteration of Islam that, uh, you know, that was was really my first encounter with Islam as a lived tradition, as opposed to just something you read about in books. But but I think in large part that still holds true. I mean, you, you know, with with accounts of the life of the, you know, the prophet and, and his companions, you get very, very frank, open discussions about sex in various forms. And, you know, these were not shy people. People would, you know, ask uh, the prophet Muhammad questions that were very intimate in nature about 
you know, nocturnal emissions and, and, you know, attraction and all you know, these various things. And, and, um, and he would answer them quite, quite frankly. And, uh, and also a lot of that tradition comes through to us through women. Um, you know, it, it's, imagine having hundreds of pages, hun literally hundreds of pages of firsthand accounts of early Christianity or of, of the ministry of Jesus from Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of Jesus, uh, you know, and the women who sort of surrounded him. In, in Islam, we have all of that. Hundreds of pages of testimony by by women who were part of that early movement. And so, you know, we, we also get what I think is lacking in, um, you know, certainly in a, in a textual sense, uh, in, in a lot of other, uh, you know, monotheistic traditions, which is women talking about women's issues in their own words, which is which is kind of cool, which is not to say that you can't take all of that and make a giant misogynistic mess, because absolutely you can. And we see evidence of that every day. But, uh, but it, it was sort of functionally very different from sort of the the sort of post-Protestant view that I had had of religion in general growing up and, and was surprising to me, um, you know, because I was I was sort of going into the study of Islam as a very blank slate. I knew nothing about it. And I was expecting it to be Christianity light. And to discover something that was so vastly different was was very surprising to me. And I think uh, continues to surprise a, a lot of Westerners whose primary experiences with Islam are terrorism and, uh, you know, the slowly collapsing mess that exists because of colonialism and, and you know, subsequent decades of uh, military and theocratic rule uh, in the Middle East and, and various parts of South Asia. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's interesting to see the, the specific things that color our experiences of these very, very old traditions, which have meant radically different things at, at different periods of history. One of the things that I, I thought was interesting about the book is it's not, it's about a lot of things, obviously, but, but one of the primary ones, I think, is the experience of being a Western woman in a culture with much more, again, the word is not precise here, but traditionalist gender roles mm -hmm. and gender attitudes. And you, you have a line in there that it was such a tantalizing contradiction, being a woman in the Middle East, far less free than a woman in the West, but far more appreciated. And, you know, you talk in the book about thinking of yourself and being a feminist and also about developing a, let's say, more nuanced view about the role of women in a society like Egypt and what some of these societal norms that I think strike Americans certainly would strike me if I walked into them blind as very backwards, as very oppressive mean and why they exist in, in the way they do. So so what did you mean by that, that being less free but more appreciated? Um, I, I think primarily something that that is that is I think important to to take into account is that freedom, freedom and happiness do not necessarily correlate. You know, you can be free, uh, free and unhappy. You can be uh, in a much more restricted environment and and be happy. And and I think for me it was very interesting coming from. A, a radically different society to discover that women in Egypt were not as miserable as maybe I had been led to believe. I think, you know, I had, even after I converted a lot of the kind of internal biases that we all have in the West, uh, because our our exposure to women in the Middle East is is typically as 
a political cudgel used to foment the next war that we're going to wage in wherever. Like, oh, you know, look at these women who are, you know, their lives are horrible. We have to go and save them. Let's charge in and and whatever. And so to, you know, to, to make all of these uh, you know, friends in Egypt who were happy <laughs> in, in a situation that, uh, you know, that, that I growing up would have considered and, and still do consider extremely restrictive. And that's, that's not to take away from the fact that, the, you know, the situation is very restrictive, that this is not an environment in which personal freedom is highly valued really for anybody, male or female, but it, it, it has particular repercussions, I think, for women. Um, but that in spite of that, there were things that were working. And it, it really drove home to me that a lot of the time we look for international solutions to local problems and we become surprised when they don't work. When really, I think what being in that environment showed me is that it's it's really only people who have lived in those societies and who know not just what isn't working, but what is working, who can come up with real workable solutions to the, to the issues that they face. And, you know, that, that was very surprising to me. I, I think I was, was going in, again, very young and naive with this idea that, you know, that, that we could have some sort of universal notion of what is right and what is wrong and, and what works in America will automatically work in a place like Egypt. And to be bafflingly wrong was 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 quite a shock to me. And you know, th- there are aspects of of life in Egypt uh, that that I still very much miss living here in the United States. And and one of them is the fact that a lot of that invisible labor that I think women still do here in the United States is very much taken for granted here. But there is sort of seen as the fulcrum around which the entire society turns. So bringing people together for meals, uh, you know, being sort of the, the center of family life. Here, I think, by and large, women are still expected to perform that kind of labor. But because we consider it lesser and, and a sort of a symbol of, of uh, you know, a system that wasn't working, it goes largely unappreciated. And we don't even really like talking about it. Um, but there it was celebrated. And I, I think what it really drove home to me also was that if people feel appreciated for the work that they do, no matter what that work is, whether it's working in the house, you know, domestically, um, as, uh, you know, a, a mother or a father, you know, involved in the raising of children and the keeping of a home, or whether it's, you know, being the CEO of a company, it's the feedback that we get that really determines our happiness. It's, it's whether or not we feel that that work is recognized and valued and less the nature of the work itself, which was very interesting to me. That's a really, I think, powerful point. And, you know, it makes me think about uh, a controversy. So I'm speaking to you from D.C. By the time we (laughs) come out with this podcast, this will probably be over. But Vice President Mike Pence, his wife, wrote an op-ed this week or last week. And she mentioned offhandedly something that he has said before, which is that he has a rule that he will not have dinner one-on-one with a woman who is not his wife or even with a number of women who are not his wife if there are not men there. And he will not be at an event and drink alcohol around women if his wife is not there. And this has been the occasion for something of an outcry. And the way the outcry has been explained, and I think it's true, I think there's validity to this point, is that, yes, you may want to resist temptation, 
But in doing that, you are curtailing work opportunities for women, whereas, you know, he's perfectly happy to go out and get a beer with, you know, the guys who work in his office, say. That looks to, I think, a lot of people here and certainly a lot of liberals here like a a form of traditionalism that has very little merit to it. And on the other hand, it would be – that would be an extremely soft regulation, I think, from what I understand uh, in Egypt. And so I'm curious how how you see that, how you how you navigate questions like that in a society like this one that has different norms. You know, do you think that we we go too far in rejecting that kind of outlook? I, I think this this has been a big uh, source of debate over the last few days in the in the American Muslim community as well, because it does present exactly the conundrum you described. It. Um, you know, I think from a personal standpoint, it's commendable to want to prioritize your marriage. Um, but it's, it's I think, a, a brilliant example of why things that might be commendable on a personal level, when they become systematized and bureaucratized, become disastrous. Because for exactly the reason that you cited, um, you know, from Mike Pence and his wife, that's great. You know, they're protecting their marriage, they're prioritizing each other. But for any women who are trying to break into the halls of power, it's an absolute disaster. And I think this is something that, um, you know, modern Muslims are very much struggling with as well for precisely the same reasons. Because women have been told uh, in, in many places in the Muslim world over and over again, it's like, oh, it's not you. We're just trying to, you know, protect uh, again, relationships and, uh, you know, sort of individual relationships, marital and otherwise. And so the reason that you can't be on the mosque board has nothing to do with you personally, and it's not your fault. It's it's just that if we have a woman there, then it sort of changes the dynamic. And this has been used as an excuse to keep women out of uh, power and influence and, and out of jobs at which they could be highly skilled. So I think this this is something that is going to be uh, you know, very interesting to watch it kind of play out uh, in the Muslim community. And and also, you know, I, I think in the larger culture as well, because, you know, I, I think it's important to remember, and this, this is something that we talk about all the time as American Muslims, that prior really, certainly prior to 2001, and, and even after that, really prior to this election, there was really no such thing as a Muslim left in America. There certainly is now. I mean, all sorts of things are being reinterpreted and and kind of rediscussed in light of the political alignment as it exists in America today. And all of a sudden, um, you know, this this whole idea of Muslim feminism, which would have been laughed off by both the left wing, you know, in the United States and by traditionalist Muslims 10 years ago, is now all of a sudden something taken very seriously. And these are big questions, I think, that people are going to have to to ask you know, what does this mean for the public sphere when you make these very personal choices that are, and I believe this to be true, and, and I think there's something, uh, you know, noble about wanting to to sort of protect your marriage and prioritize your marriage. But at the same time, what does that mean when you are upending the lives of all of these other people and preventing people from, uh, you know, accessing opportunities that they might otherwise have? And I think there need to be some some weighing of priorities, I think. And, uh, it, it, you know, I don't, I don't really have a one-size-fits-all solution to that, but I am very interested to see how this discussion plays out and, uh, you know, 
really, I'm, I'm interested to see if Mike Pence, too, will respond to this in any way, or his wife, for that matter, um, because I'm, I'm interested to see if these conversations are playing out in the, uh, you know, in the Christian community in the same way that they are in the Muslim community. We talk about not just the rise of a, of a Muslim left, but a left that has affinity and is developing, I think, in opposition, a real, much more explicit affinity with the Muslim community. The, the character you created, Kamala Khan, has become a – Miss Marvel has become a, a protest icon since mm-hmm. the since the rise of Trump. I mean, you see her on signs, you see her on, on buses, and I'm curious if that surprised you. You know, it really did. Um, when when Sana Aminat, my editor, and I first sat down to sort of hash out this series, we had in mind sort of a three-issue exit strategy because we thought the series was going to be canceled at issue 10. <laughs> so we said, okay, we've got to figure out a way from the very beginning to, to sort of gracefully end this series because it's not going to be around for very long. So to see this character become not just a protest icon, but, but, you know, sort of a figure in our, in our wider cultural conversation and, you know, a a touchstone for readers and, and, you know, become a fixture in sort of the pantheon of, uh, you know, of American comics has has been really mind blowing for me. I mean, I wake up every day and I kind of pinch myself (laughs) because I frankly thought we're now four years into the series. You know, I thought this would be sort of an 18 month assignment that would be consigned to the dustbin of history and, and, you know, nobody would remember it when it was over except for me. So to see this, all this come about is really pretty extraordinary to me and, 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 and quite amazing. And just, I just, I mean, you know, I, I'm obviously at a loss for words because I think we could have done this exact same series 10 years ago and it would have had exactly the arc that we expected. It would have been canceled after issue 10 Maybe we would have been, you know, patted on the back for diversity and and then that would have been it because that's usually the way that these things go. Um, And I think it says a lot more about the way that the audience has changed, really, more than anything that we've done. And I use the royal we when I talk about Ms. Marvel because every single month, you know, I write the script, but uh, Adrian Alfana and Takeshi Miyazawa illustrate it. We've had Ian Herring, our wonderful colorist and uh, letterers and, uh, you know, Sana Amanat, our fearless leader. So it's the work of many hands. So oftentimes I'll use the royal we because it really is way more than just me. Um, it, you know, it, it really says something about the ways in which we as media consumers have changed in the last 10 years and the influence of the millennial audience as well, I think cannot be understated. So it's it's really encouraging to me to go into a series like this where I said, you know, okay, we're, we're not going to pull any punches. We're, we're not going to baby anybody. We're, we're going to sort of show a snapshot of American Muslim life. But at the same time, you know, we have uh, gay characters. Uh, we have characters who are uh, atheists. We have characters from sort of across the political spectrum. And it was very important to me to portray all of those people with love and sensitivity and uh, to be true to those narratives as well as, you know, Kamala's narrative at the center, um, because it would be a kind of profound hypocrisy to, you know, create a, a series like this in which we're sort of highlighting a narrative of a population that is misunderstood and marginalized if we did not also find a way to to lift up 
the narratives of other uh, peoples who have been likewise sidelined and marginalized. And so that was something very important to me. It was something very important to Sana. The fact that I can, you know, write a comic book series about a young American Muslim uh, girl and have openly gay characters who are, you know, protagonists and play a large part in the series and girls in hijab come to my readings with their mothers is extraordinary to me. I, I, I just, I, I can't tell you how different that is versus say even 10 years ago. It's, it still amazes me. So this is a really interesting thing you're saying here though, that, that I want to key in on the idea that it is actually different, that it's not that this was simply not being done 10 years ago or suppressed 10 years ago, or it was, you know, not, not, not seen as something the market would support that actually the market wouldn't have supported it, that we have changed in a, in a real way Absolutely. as a culture, as an audience. What do you think those changes are? Uh, I think it's a number of factors. I think part of it is the fact that uh, people have more efficient ways to communicate with each other through social media. Um, there are platforms now that are very easy to access on which people can tell their stories uh, that didn't exist in quite the same way 10 years ago. And as a result of that, people who once thought, I'm alone, I'm the only one who's ever been through what it is that I'm going through, uh, you know, that that has sort of started to disappear because people are finding each other. And, you know, people who thought that they were the only Muslim computer geek World of Warcraft players now have giant communities of, of you know, geeky Muslim World of Warcraft players. I'm one of them. That's just kind of why I cited that. Um, you know, or... You know, I have I have uh, friends and followers through Twitter and, and otherwise who are transgender and, and who grew up in faith communities and have been wrestling with this idea of, you know, what do I, where do I fit now? I don't want to turn my back on my culture, on my history. I'm proud of those things. But how do I how do I now navigate these spaces um, and, and still be true to who I am? And I think we're all sort of reckoning with. I think what we're popularly calling intersectionality in a way that we haven't had the opportunity to do before. And that's changed the conversation. And I think the younger audiences who are in large part responsible, I think, for, uh, you know, sort of Ms. Marvel's rise as a character, for them, that's the world that they came of age in. And so I think that's a very natural medium for them. And uh, these conversations come very naturally to them, whereas they don't come as naturally, I think, to... Uh, you know, people who grew up in, in a society that was a little bit more fragmented, um, socially speaking. So it's, it's I, I really do think that we could have done word for word and panel for panel the same series 10 years ago, and, uh, and it, it might not have found an audience. Not that the audience might not have existed, but that there would not have been those connections across community boundaries that allow a series like this that is very difficult to categorize to flourish. Do you think the people buying Ms. Marvel, because it has been a, it's been a critical success, but it has been a massive audience success. I think I heard you say that it is the top downloaded Marvel comic of all time. It, yeah, it was when it came out. That may be different now, which is why I want to put a caveat, because those digital numbers do tend to change over time. But at the time that it came out, it, it was, the issue one was the most downloaded Marvel comic Ever at do that you, point. Do you think that the folks buying it, is it the traditional comic book buying audience or whatever that, that means? Or is what has happened here that social media and Tumblr and other things created a mechanism and a, a distribution space where 
and the fact that you could also just go and download the comic where it could bust through to a new market that turned out to be perhaps underserved by by the industry, but huge. I think it's it's more the latter. I mean, I, I look at sort of the month-to-month sales numbers of the book in traditional comic book stores. In other words, uh, you know, hobby stores devoted specifically to comics and related media where you have to go in and you buy the monthly floppy issue on one Wednesday out of the month. Uh, and the numbers there in that traditional comic book format are, uh, you know, no more than modest. And really where the sales are, are in the collected trade paperbacks, which you can buy, uh, you know, at, at brick and mortar bookstores, you can buy them from Amazon or, you know, um, Barnes and Noble. You can also download the comic digitally through, through Comixology and some of these other, uh, you know, digital reading apps. And the fact that much of the audience is, is sort of heavily freighted in those newer or newer newer to comics anyway those newer outlets tells me that this is primarily a non-traditional comics audience although i do have to say that you know a lot of the most hardcore ms marvel fans that i've met have gotten into the series through a love of marvel and through uh you know captain marvel who's uh, sort of the, the the predecessor of of ms marvel whose story is um you know, also kind of unique in in the way that it uh, deals with with the empowerment of of women and girls and and sort of being a woman in in superherodom. So you know, like I I would not underestimate the influence of that hardcore traditional fan base, but at the same time, I I do see a real trend toward those new media readers who who are not necessarily the ones who are going into their local comic book store once a month. That that implies to me that one of the lessons of of Miss Marvel, I think of other things too, but potentially of particularly your your project, is that representation has become good business, and and I think that's interesting because I think that there's been a tendency to think about calls for representation as a political question and not not a business question, and that you know. You, you've seen this sort of as a, as a kind of pushback that, you know, you just have to give the market what it wants, that this is just people, you know, organizing and, and making political claims and, and doing special pleading. And, you know, the success of, of Miss Marvel, I think of some of the of some of the newer television shows like Empire and Atlanta, it makes you think that rather than imposing a product on the marketplace, that calls for representation have actually been a corrective to the marketplace being, or at least the the producers being too dismissive of a market that was out there and has just been really badly underserved. I think there's really something to that. I think everybody knows that the the actual demographics of the United States are are changing and that the millennial audience, of course, this is a statistic touted all the time, is the most ethnically diverse age cohort that we've seen uh, you know, since white people showed up in boats oh so long ago and um, sort of changed the the original makeup of of the the place itself. I just say that's an amazing um, way of framing that. It's completely <laughs> correct, but I don't think people ever say. Quite I know like because that. it's it's so. You know what it is. I I saw there was a Native American cartoonist whose work I was following on Tumblr, and and uh, you know just after that statistic sort of became a big thing that was very talked about. He or she, actually, I don't even know. I just, I saw the comic and I don't remember the name, which is terrible. But uh, there was a <laughs> a comic where it was, it, it showed two Native American people 
listening to the radio where this was being discussed and, and you know, it was first generation to be the most ethnically diverse and, and or to be majority non-white. And one of the Native Americans listening said, second. <laughs> and I was like, that is absolutely true. And ever since then, I've tried to remember that, uh, you know, we, we think of the history of this continent in very particular terms, starting at about 1492, when in fact it has a history that extends, of course, far beyond that. Um, but, you know, having said that, in, in sort of modern reckoning, the millennial audience is, is much more diverse than, uh, you know, the audiences that, that have come before it. And I think we're starting to see that reflected in their media habits um, and in the things that they, you know, buy and listen to and watch and enjoy. And so I, I think that's part of it. I've also seen, however, a counter trend over the past couple of years that sort of intensified uh, you know, in the election and, and after the election of what we would think of as the quote unquote traditional audience consciously boycotting and rejecting those stories as well, saying, well, you know, this is this is not mine. This is not for me. I feel that this is sort of antagonistic to my own identity or, or sense of self. And so you're starting to see that atomization of buying habits and watching habits and reading habits um, that we see in politics as well. So I, I think there's there's a trend and then there's also a counter trend. And the gaps between those things, I think, um, are, are as worrisome from a pop cultural point of view as they are from a political one. What is your sympathetic read of what we might loosely call the, the Gamergate position on this? And, and the reason I say sympathetic is obviously this movement has a lot of dimensions to it. It has really ugly ones. It has people who harass and send death threats. But, you know, for the folks who maybe are not on on that edge, do you have a sort of a empathetic take on the folks who, you know, are maybe traditional comics readers or young white men and hear these calls for representation and see this new, the, the emergence of these new products and you know, the these themes being represented in older products as a criticism of them and as a taking of something from them. Do you, is, there, is there a part of that that resonates for you? You know, gosh, it's difficult to know how to answer that. I, I think I sort of came of age in a comic book consuming sense in the 90s. Um, where the cool thing was to be a total jerk. Like that that was the cool thing. Uh, you know, the creators, the cool thing among comic book creators was to kind of make fun of your own fans and very much talk down to them. And, and there was this very much, uh, you know, kind of humorous nihilism that I think very, very much tells us a lot about, about kind of the, the, the nihilism that we see kind of in this political sphere today. And... In that period, kind of the late 90s and the, and the early 2000s, if you brought up sexism, racism, anything like that, you would immediately be shut down because we were over that. We had a women's movement. We had a civil rights movement. Anybody who's still talking about that stuff is just being a buzzkill and trying to get attention. That was very much how it was. And these were the days before Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr, but what you had at that point were uh, you know, creator forums, kind of these very old school nested, uh, you know, message boards. Um, but they were becoming a real influence. And so that was sort of my first exposure to kind of the online 
geek community. And I had to stop participating in them because I was like, geez, I'm going to talk myself out of a job before I even have one. Because you couldn't, you could, you could not bring these things up. You couldn't do it. Um, and it was, I mean, you know, it was, it was a weird, weird situation to, to be, you know, in a world where, where you, I, I mean, it, it just seems like the, the people who now are complaining about things like representation have developed the memory of a goldfish because they were the ones in those positions, you know, sort of repressing those conversations 20 years ago. I was there. I saw it. You can't tell me it didn't happen. <laughs> um, it, it, so, you know, it, it seems like people are really sort of eager to view themselves as the good guys. And I think that that's not a bad thing to want to be. You know, I, I think if you want to be the good guy, that's that that probably says that that, you know, deep inside you somewhere that there's there's a tendency toward doing the right thing, which is admirable. But I think that can lead one to assume that therefore everything one thinks and does and feels is likewise good. And, you know, I hope, I don't really know how to phrase this. I, I would just like to point out that there is no such thing as the way things have always been. In pop culture, in religion, in regular culture, in whatever, the people who would love to go back to seeing Superman being truth, justice, and the American way forget that when that slogan originally premiered in the 30s, it was truth, justice, and tolerance. And it was changed to truth, justice, and the American way during the McCarthy era and the era of the comic book code. So there is no such thing as the way it has always been. And change is scary. I get that. It can be very frightening to feel that you're being left out of conversations or that the vocabulary has changed or that you no longer set the rules. I get that also. And I think the thing to remember is that we are being invited to listen. What all of the social media has amounted to is that people who once had a very limited voice in traditional media now have larger platforms to tell their stories. And there's a lot of bottled up storytelling, stories that that had no audience or that couldn't find an audience in traditional media that are now kind of out there. And so we're, we're hearing voices that we might not have heard before. And the view that they have of the world and the country that we live in might be very different than the stories that we were told growing up. And I think it's, it's important to just listen and to remember that we're not always required to respond or to form opinions, that sometimes it's okay to just listen and absorb and hear people in their own words. So I'm, I'm sympathetic in the sense that, that I understand how scary that change can be and that to a lot of people, it must feel like the rug is being pulled out from under them. But I think it's also important for, for people who feel that way to remember that these people who are telling these new stories and who have these perspectives have always been there. And so in that sense, the change is not as monumentous as, as people might think. It's just that now we are being asked to listen. I really love the concept of bottled up storytelling. And I think in in my space, you've we've seen this dramatically. What went on the newspaper's front page, what went on the NBC or ABC Nightly News was not decided by sophisticated audience data. We didn't have that. It was decided by what white male editors, of which, by the way, I am a white male editor, thought was important. 
And it was also decided by what the existing audience, which was an existing audience built around what white male editors thought was important, would respond to, right? Because you get angry letters from people who don't like what you did, who are already subscribing. But with something new, often the people who did not know you were doing anything for them in the first place never even find it. And and this feels to me, I have a lot of criticisms of social media, but this feels to me like the great positive thing it's done, which is show just how much pent-up demand there was for coverage of, for stories from, for stories by these other perspectives. And I think then the speed with which that happened, because there was so much latent audience and there was so much latent demand and there was so much latent talent, that has felt very strange to people because I think they feel there is a zero-sum aspect to it. But what always feels like the mistake in this to me is that when you create, when you add on to the audiences that a newspaper can have, that comics can have, that it's not zero sum. You can actually create more media. You can create more stories. You you actually have a larger platform on, on which to stand on. And so one of the things that has felt very present in this conversation is an implicit belief that there's this one pie, right? There are X mm-hmm. number of Marvel comics. There's X number of pages in the newspaper. Vox only runs so many stories a day. And if Vox is talking about, you know, issues that, from a more diverse perspective or video game reviews are, you know, pushing for more characters in a game to, you know, not uh, to, to, to be appealing to, to women gamers, that you're just going to get less of the pie as opposed to seeing the idea that, you know, if women begin gaming, the number of games you're about to get because of how much profitable that industry will be. It'll jump dramatically, but people don't see it as positive sum. They, they they seem to me to see it as zero sum at best and negative sum possibly. Yeah, I I think that's true. I I think that's true, and it's it's a shame because I think with these news stories that are being told, there's a great opportunity to create empathy. I think for for a long time we learned all of us to see ourselves in a very particular kind of hero, you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. And those are still deeply beloved characters by this sort of new changing audience. And, you know, people learned to sort of take what they could from those stories, whether or not those stories sort of reflected their own individual experiences. So I, I think, ironically, there's, there's sort of less willingness in kind of the, I know, when I say the older audience, I don't mean chronologically older necessarily. I mean, what we used to think of as a more traditional audience or, or the audience that was, that was the assumed audience for so long. You know, when they react with that zero-sum mentality to, you know, the new stories that are being told, the new things that are coming out, there's, there's a missed opportunity there to do that in reverse, to see parts of themselves in characters whose broad stroke life experiences might be very different from their own. And, and you know, that, that empathy and that ability to sort of step out into somebody else's shoes, which you can't ever really do, but, you know, in the sense that we can do that through fiction, um, is, that's something that we really need, I think, as a nation right now. And it, it just, you know, it kind of goes back to that idea of, of, of being asked to listen, which is a very different thing than being told to leave. And that's, I think, what a lot of people are mistakenly hearing. They hear, please listen as get out. And that's not what it is. You know, it's, I I think people need to recognize when they're being called in 
and take that opportunity rather than react defensively. But I understand that that's a tough thing to do, uh, especially for people who feel like even, you know, the, the words that we use, the vocabulary that we use to describe our common experiences is changing so much. But when we talk about this, when we say, oh gosh, things are moving so fast now and things are so different, I feel like, you know, you, you can look back to the time of the Greeks and see people saying the same thing. So clearly this is, this is not unusual. <laughs> you know, the only constant in human history has been change. And I, I forget who said that, but what we're talking about now reminded me of it. But there was a Greek writer I was, I was reading something of for, for class and I highlighted this and I wrote it down and I've kept it ever since. And I might be mangling the exact wording, but it was something like, the world is going to heck because children no longer obey their parents and everyone is writing a book. And I was like, it, it sounds like right now. I mean, it, it sounds like something that could be written today. It's just like the book part is the most hilarious. Everybody's writing a book. So clearly this desire to, to tell stories and that, that sense that there are things that we need to communicate and people that we might not be including in the conversation has been a factor in human experience for quite a long time. So I don't really think that what's happening now is all that unprecedented. I, I just think that people get used to sort of their, their milieu and, and their way of thinking and speaking. And then for people to come in and disrupt that feels quite scary sometimes. Bringing up the the Greeks is is useful for me, so I appreciate that you did it because something I have. <laughs> and been... I don't know, somebody you know somebody will hear that and be like, oh, I know who said that. So. <laughs> oh yes, no, there's nothing. Yeah. Uh, the the responses to all podcasts begin with actually. Uh, yep. Uh, so, yeah. I have no uh, doubt. So get ready. I have no but doubt. I am fascinated by the role that comic characters play in contemporary American culture, and and the only thing that it seems similar to me is myth. Uh, mm -hmm. you can go more religious with this, but, but to may, maybe denature it a little bit, use Greek myth where the same stories get reinterpreted and reinterpreted and reinterpreted and retold and retold and retold. And they have a, a very unusual and, and basic flexibility that allows them to then create, uh, common vehicles through which we can explore sort of changing ideas and changing times, and and it just and I noticed this a couple of years ago when I noticed, including me, political writers beginning to write using long analogies to comic book characters, and you know the 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 rise of the Marvel movies and and others. There seems to be something about comic book characters where they've become American myths, and they are a sort of reasonably common language through which we can keep telling stories, and in the changes between the stories, sort of track where we're going. And I'm curious if that feels right to you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I've, I found it very helpful to think about comic book characters in those terms when I work, because I think what comic book characters do, much like the way that the, the Greek and Roman myths did, is, is provide analogies that sort of describe the zeitgeist. You know, they, they sort of describe the state that we're in now. And that state changes from decade to decade, but the characters stay the same. And that's what's so interesting and fascinating about some of these characters who are now approaching 100 years old, is that much of the time they have the same or similar costumes. Their origin stories haven't changed that much, or they've changed radically, but then gone back to exactly the way that they were, as anybody who follows comics continuity will know and bemoan. But it, it's, it's very interesting to see the changes that do take place, because it's a way, I think, 
of tracking the history of our own national conversations. Uh, you know, going back to the Superman example, you know, starting out as the creation of, uh, you know, of, of the sons of two Jewish refugees whose motto is truth, justice, and tolerance. But then once he becomes this great American symbol and, you know, we get into an era where we're very suspicious of people who think differently and everything is communism and, you know, we have to develop a code to make sure that uh, nobody's talking about uh, subversive ideas. And then all of a sudden he, you know, is holding the American flag and he's truth, justice in the American way around the same time that we added under God to the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. So it, it's very interesting to track those changes because they tell us what we value and who we are through the story of a single character. And, and that is what is so fascinating to me because these kind of are our immortals, you know, they, they exist outside of time and yet they tell us a lot about the times in which they were written. I am not schooled in the history of comics, but I'm very fascinated by how this approach to continuity emerged. And I'm, I'm curious if you know the answer to it. Very little else works this way, where you can take something, a story that exists, that has been released by a major company, and then just retell it, have a whole new origin story, or have the origin story then branch off into, into a different place. And it seems to me that has been so central to the existence and persistence of of this medium. And, and I think you even see with what Disney's doing with Star Wars, an effort now to try to bring it to other fictional universes so they can begin to have a similar ability to go back and back and back to the well. But but why did comics develop this strange tendency? Because you don't have this in in other things. I mean, you you can't do it in most old movies from the 1950s, just retell them in a completely different way. <laughs> I, you could write whole books about this topic, but I think on a practical level, it comes back to the fact that you can't in comics ever really kill anybody off, no matter what anybody tells you. They, the, the characters must continue to exist because they are like gods. If, if they really do die, people panic. And so what you have to do once you've run out of stories to tell about this person is to reinvent them. And sometimes the way that uh, a comic book company or writer or a group of creators will go about that, is to destroy the original story, but keep the new story in its own little contained timeline. In other words, in, in the original universe, the original uh, you know, continuity is true, but this is a different universe. This is a parallel world. This is a timeline, and we're going to tell you it's the only timeline, but then one of the characters who is outside of time will come in and destroy it, and everything will go back to the status quo. Every single... And, you know, my Marvel editors who are listening to this are going to kill me for saying it. But every single major event in comic books can be described as the world is coming to an end again. So, you know, it, it really does become about periodically destroying the world so that you can uh, tell new stories, clean up the old continuity, but then go back and set the status quo at roughly what it was before because people need that continuity. I think that's why people come to comics is is to see characters that have been around for 75 years that, that uh, you know, their grandparents read and knew and loved and their parents knew and read and loved. Um, so I, I think it's sort of a job hazard of being unable to ever really get rid of anything or anybody. Um, so you, you have to sort of temporarily destroy and remake in order to start to tell new stories. And so that ends up being what happens. And also, I think for a lot of people, it becomes sort of fun and a point of pride 
to know the differences between all of those different continuities and you know that, you know, in this timeline, these two people have a child who goes on to become, you know, the most powerful person in the world. But in this timeline, they hate each other and one of them is dead. And, you know, to, to be able to sort all that out is is sort of part of the fun for some people in comics. Although to newcomers, it can just make it absolutely impenetrable. <laughs> is there a character that, that you wish, an existing character that you would enjoy reapplying and, and reimagining for this era? Oh, gosh. You know, part of the fun for me about working in the comics industry now is that so many characters are undergoing that kind of reimagining. And so I get to sort of see movies that and uh, that I would not necessarily have seen or read books that I might have wished for that might not have existed uh, when I was a kid. So I, th I think Wonder Woman has been a big one. I'm very interested to see what's going to happen with the film. It's interesting to see uh, how her mandate has kind of shifted uh, a little bit. And I think especially in an era where discussions about feminism are so fraught, to have this Amazon from a society made up entirely of women be, be sort of part of the major trinity of this giant comic book franchise is, is very, very interesting. And a lot of people kind of want to lay claim to that legacy. So to see that navigated in, uh, you know, in, in today's political atmosphere is very interesting. Um, I would love to see Storm, who is uh, sort of the de facto leader of the X-Men, get her own solo ongoing book written by an African writer who can go back and sort of look at her history as uh, uh, a refugee child in Kenya and then in, in Cairo and sort of look at that from a perspective that I don't think anybody has yet been able to capture. She was sort of my hero growing up. Um, I was a huge X-Men fanatic. I loved her. I thought she was amazing. She was just so effortlessly a leader. It was, it was never really a question of why she was in charge or, or you know, th these, all of the discussions about women in positions of power were sort of non-existent around her because she was, there was, there was just something magisterial about her and wonderful. And then I got to see the uh, cartoon that came out in the early 90s. And the voice actress who played her had this wonderful, very low contralto voice. And I have had this low contralto voice since I was about five. So to see this leader, romantic lead, female character who also had a low, low voice was was just incredible for me as, a, as you know, as a kid. Um, and I would just love to see what a writer that's sort of outside our usual pool of comic book writers would do with that character. The theme song from the X-Men cartoon of the 90s is for some reason... The it's single piece of now. music most burnt <laughs> into my head for the rest of my life. Uh, I don't think I will ever. I love that cartoon, too. I don't think I will ever drop it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Don't go back and rewatch it. I started. Parts of it do not hold up. So just oh. cherish the memories. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually good to know. Um, I know I got to be respectful of your time here. So so let me let me end with uh, our, our normal ending question, which is what are three books you would recommend to the audience uh, that that you've read and you've loved and and others should read. And I'm going to add a secondary one on, which is what are three graphic novels that maybe people mostly haven't read that that they should that if they're not maybe a big comics fan or they're not too read into the history, they should check out. Oh gosh. Um, okay, I'll start with the second one, and I would recommend for people who may not 
have a background in graphic novels, a couple of different things. For a YA book, Anya's Ghost, it won a um, an Eisner Award several years ago. It's excellent. It's the sort of book where it's it's just scary enough. Uh, it does not talk down to necessarily a YA audience. It's it's just very well done. the The second one is actually a trilogy: The Color of Earth, The Color of Water, and The Color of Heaven. From first second, it's uh, the English translation of a manhwa series from Korea. And the story is an amazing coming-of-age story about a girl and her mother. The art is incredible. There's uh, a lot of the story is told through the art in some very subtle and interesting ways. So that's fantastic. And then Fun Home by Alison Bechdel, which is now, I think, a Broadway play as well, uh, is, is so painfully hilarious, on point, you know, it's it's a difficult but very rewarding read. Her art style is is so unique and comfortable and relatable, but at the same time, very much hers. So those are the three that I would recommend on the graphic novel end. For book books, after I published Aleph the Unseen, which was my first novel without pictures, as I tell it, which is set in a sort of an Arab Spring-like revolution, uh, I get a lot of questions about book recommendations for people looking to understand the Arab Spring and how it all kind of unraveled. So for them, I would recommend A Revolution Undone by H.A. Hellier, who is a wonderful British-Egyptian writer who was in Egypt during the revolution and who has some very, very interesting observations about why it happened and also why it kind of started to unravel. For anybody who's looking for fantasy with maybe a non-usual, non-European fantasy setting, I would highly recommend Throne of the Crescent Moon by Saladin Ahmad. It's a fantastic, in many ways classic, sword and sorcery uh, epic, but in a very interesting fictional Middle Eastern setting. And then for people who are interested in reading about uh, Islam from more of a spiritual point of view, less of sort of a technocratic and ritualistic point of view, I would highly recommend a good translation of The Meccan Revelations by Ibn Arabi. Uh, there's an excellent one by William Chittick. This is not Philosophy 101. It can be very challenging to read. It's very challenging in the original. It's it's even more challenging in translation when you don't necessarily know what terms are referencing what. But if you want to sort of gain an understanding of how things like imagination, creativity, uh, emotional life, dreams, all of this stuff works in an Islamic framework. That's an excellent book to read. Those are those are fantastic recommendations. And if people want to follow your work, uh, your thoughts, where what should they be reading? What, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, I'm on Twitter quite a bit. I've been on a bit of a break as I'm finishing up my second novel without pictures, but I'm usually there all the time. It's my water cooler. And you can find me at G Willow Wilson. And uh, you can also find out where I'm going to be and my schedule and all sorts of other things at gwillowwilson.com. Lovely. Well, G. Willow Wilson, thank you so much for this conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. Absolutely happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you to G. Willow Wilson for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed that. Thank you to my producers, AC Valdez and Bert Pinkerton. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>